I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, we uh, come now to really what is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So I don't know, we've been in, at this for five or six months now, I think. Um, and uh, we're coming to the end. Uh, next week, we are going to look at verses 28 and 29, which talk of the crowd's response to Jesus' teaching. But today we're looking at verses 24 to 27, which are the, the last words of Jesus in this particular sermon, uh, his conclusion, if you will. And just before we read those verses, just a little reminder of where we've been in this, uh, the last several weeks here. We're in this last section, obviously, of the Sermon on the Mount that began in verse 13, in which Jesus has been giving us some admonitions and some cautions, various instruction about the entrance into his kingdom and about life in his kingdom. So he has taught us, of course, uh, about the narrow gate and then the hard or constricted, narrow path that uh, ends in life. This is the way of, of his kingdom in contrast to the wide gate and wide path that leads to destruction. He has warned us about the presence of false prophets, false teachers who come uh, as uh, dressed in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And these are those who would seek to lead people away from the narrow gate and path. And then last week, we looked at verses 21 to 23 at the danger of self-deception. Uh, that there are those who believe themselves to be perfectly fine with the Lord Jesus, uh, but who will find out on the day that they stand before him that they do not belong. Uh, that, that Jesus ultimately has never known them in a saving way. And they will be cast out. So there are those who are Christians in name only. They call Jesus Lord, but he says, they, they don't do the will of my Father who is in heaven. And yet others who will say to Jesus, well, we've done all these works in your name. Uh, and yet Jesus will still say, away from me, I never knew you. These are people, as we saw last time, who are uh, really ultimately hoping in their own works. Right? They're, they're how they would justify themselves before the Lord in that day is, look at all the things that I have done. So they're not ultimately hoping and resting in Christ Jesus. And now as we come to verses 24 to 27... It's really a continuation of verses 21 and 23. Very similar things being said here. And if time would have permitted, we would have just included them in last week's sermon as well. Uh, because there's a lot of similarity. Um, but let's read verses 24 to 27 and then, and then we'll get into that. Our Lord says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. As Jesus concludes his sermon here, he addresses his listeners and he shows them that he's not simply preaching for their listening pleasure. He's not there to entertain them. He's not there to be an amusement to them. He's not simply trying to gain a following and a large crowd. He's not trying to impress people with his oratory skills and his clever argumentation and his masterful delivery. Uh, nor is he trying to amaze them and amuse them with how he 
you know, owns and rebukes the hypocrites and his opponents and so on. Rather, he's preaching so that people will hear what he has to say and then respond rightly to it. There's actually a lot on the line here for his listeners. There's an amazing reality that we could miss in last week's sermon. I didn't spend a lot of time drawing attention to it. And in this week's passage that we'll talk a little more about next week when we get to the crowd's response. But Jesus, think about what he's saying in these verses we've read. The difference between the wise and the fool, between safety and salvation versus destruction, is how a person responds to his words. That is a, an incredibly bold statement. He is the fulcrum. And we saw this even last week, that when people die and stand before the Lord, they'll be talking to the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, Lord, Lord, and they're expecting to meet him when they die and are, are, are under God's judgment. This is a, an amazing claim to authority that Jesus is making. And as he's teaching, he's preaching here and communicating that he is doing this with an expectation of a certain response. That it is not enough to just simply hear what he has to say and leave and say that was amusing or interesting. And he reveals this here by way of contrasting two types of hearing. There is wise hearing and there is foolish hearing. And this doesn't just have reference to Jesus' original audience as he was preaching on this hillside near the Sea of Galilee, this Sermon on the Mount. It continues to confront us today with this question of what kind of hearer are we? Again, we, we've seen and we continue to see today the danger of a, a sort of bare faith or some sort of mere mere faith, this, this profession of faith, calling Jesus Lord, but it has no actual effect in one's life, or hearing Jesus' words, but then it really doesn't actually make a difference in how one goes about their life. So the question's raised, how is it that we hear? What kind of a hearer are you? And what he reveals in these verses is that the wise person not only hears Christ's words, but believes and acts upon them and thereby stands on a firm foundation. And so I want to just look at this in two parts, two parts to the sermon. The first, the wise person not only hears Christ's words, but believes and acts upon them. The wise person not only hears Christ's words, but believes and acts upon them. So verse 24 begins, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then in verse 26, we have the contrast. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who has built his house on the sand. Jesus' original audience is there before him. He has been teaching and preaching, and we have the summary of that in this Sermon on the Mount. And now he concludes and says, it's not enough that you're simply here today. It's not enough that you would simply hear these words go through your ears. Both the wise and the foolish hear the words of Jesus, 
But clearly there is different sorts of hearing. The hearer that is likened to the fool hears the words, but there's no change affected at all, such that they don't go on and do the words that Jesus is teaching, the things that he has said. On the other hand, the hearer who is, hearer who is likened to a wise man hears the words of mine, as Jesus says, and does them. So again, the kind of hearer that Jesus is talking about as being wise is the kind of person who not only audibly makes out the sounds, doesn't just listen, but responds rightly. He or she believes what Jesus is saying and therefore then acts upon what he is saying. Now, the text does not explicitly mention belief, but I would submit to you that it is necessarily implied because one cannot rightly respond to Jesus apart from faith. And we've seen over and over again in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is not teaching legalism. He is not laying out all of these commands and saying, do all of these things, and then at the end, if you've done it well enough, you will enter the kingdom of heaven. He begins the sermon, if you recall, uh, giving us the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. And the first one he gives us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. A citizen of the kingdom is one who has seen and understood their moral bankruptcy and moral deficiency. They are impoverished in spirit, spiritually poor, and in that spiritual poverty have come to God and have received his grace. And it is such that Jesus says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is not that we have to pull ourselves up and make ourselves acceptable through all of the things that Jesus is going to command. At the end of it all, if we've done it well enough, then we get into the kingdom. Again, we remember, as Jesus has taught us about the law of God in this Sermon on the Mount, he concludes, culminates the end of chapter 5 with the words, You therefore, in light of all the explaining of the law I'm doing, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So again, if, if Jesus was teaching us this law that we might try to keep it and, and, and at the end of it all climb the ladder and reach heaven, that just, and people, I'm reminding us of this because people do take it this way. They take the Sermon on the Mount in this way, but it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Jesus would have to be saying, you must attain perfection. You must be perfect. If he is presenting this to us in a legalistic fashion. But again, this is not what he is doing. Again, a citizen of the kingdom of God is one who is recognizing their impoverished spirit and has come to God for grace and mercy. And to them belongs the kingdom of heaven. This is one who has received a new birth from God. God has regenerated them and made them new. And so they now do understand their spiritual poverty. They now do hunger and thirst for righteousness and so on. And so the wise hearer, as we get to the conclusion here, is one who believes in Christ. He rests in Christ's justifying and saving work. The wise hearer believes that Christ's word is truth and then seeks to obey what Jesus commands out of gratitude for salvation received. 
Again, if you think about the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew, the same book we're looking at, in which we are to go and make disciples of Christ, then teaching them to, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. We make disciples. How do we make disciples? We preach the gospel to people. You are a sinner, but God is gracious. He has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to die for sinners. He has risen from the dead. There is forgiveness of sins in his name. Believe in him. Repent of your sins. Entrust yourself to him. And those who believe this message and are saved become disciples. And then what, what next? We teach them to obey everything that Christ has commanded out of gratitude for salvation received. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at at the end of this here, that disciples, Christians, are those who seek to obey that which he has commanded. That is, we respond, not merely hearing the words he says and saying, that's nice, but then seeking to do the things that he has commanded. Again, I remind you that God's law Jesus has taught much of God's law to us, explained its true intent and its meaning, that it is nothing less than the the moral perfection of God. But God's law has various uses. It has different functions. So one function that the law has is to reveal to mankind how sinful we are. The law reveals God and his righteousness. It exposes us like a mirror shows us we're dirty. We fall short of God's glory. We are not perfect creatures. We fall well short of it. The law reveals this to us, and therefore it points us to our need for God's grace. It points us to our need for a salvation that's outside of ourselves because we don't measure up and we cannot measure up. And even if you were to, from henceforth, live your life perfectly, you would still have your past sins that need dealing with. So one function of God's law is to point us to our need for Christ and his salvation, that we might be justified as a gift of God's grace through believing in Christ, looking away from ourselves, trusting in Christ. And we have seen that the Sermon on the Mount reminds us of this over and over, as I'm saying now and as we've seen throughout. But another use of God's law is that it is then a guide to his people, to those who are trusting in Christ Justified by his grace, God's law reminds us and teaches us and instructs us about what pleases our God, what pleases the God who has given us life and who has redeemed us and saved us. We're reminded that God's law in itself is a good thing as it reveals who God is to us. Jesus said in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The law of God reveals to us the will of the Father, the will of God. And so Jesus has not merely taught all that he has taught in the Sermon on the Mount just so that we would understand our sinfulness and our need for him. I think that's true. But again, he is addressing disciples, kingdom citizens. And so he's teaching this to us to be our guide, that we might, in gratitude to him, seek to live our lives in obedience to him, in submission to Christ, the king of the kingdom of heaven. And so the wise hearer understands that these are the words of our redeeming king and responds in 
faith, believing these things, and in obedience to these words. Again, anyone can simply hear the words of Jesus. What credit is that to just simply have the words go into our ears? And again, we're reminded here of the danger of a mere hearing that doesn't produce result in fruit of any kind. Here Jesus says it is the foolish person who does nothing upon hearing these words, who has no desire to obey Christ's words. They're just words to them. They might find them interesting. They might even be amused by them. They might even be provoked to thoughtfulness. But there's no actual effect. There's no actual change. There's no actual desire and effort to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we find this warning also in other places in Scripture, including the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a, a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so I would just remind you, again, of the goodness of God's law. That God's moral law is rooted in his own righteousness. And so as Jesus teaches us about uh, purity in thought and word and deed, this is good because this is true of God, in whom there is no darkness at all. He is light. There's nothing impure in him. That he is light also reminds us he is truth. There is no lying in God. There is no deception in God at all. And so we are called to be those who likewise are honest and are truthful. Jesus has taught us about this as well. As we, If you remember back to when he talked about the whole matter of oaths. Let your yes be yes. Why? Because God is truth. God is a sovereign ruler of all things, of our world. He rules by his providence. And he cares for his people. And Jesus has taught us, reminded us of this fact. God cares for his sheep even more than he cares for the rest of his creatures. He cares for those he has redeemed more than he cares about the sparrows. And yet he even cares for them as well. Mankind is a greater creature, the pinnacle of God's creation, even over the flowers of the field and arrayed in all the beauty that they do indeed possess. So all who trust in Christ have been taught by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount to not worry about tomorrow because God cares about you. He knows he rules in providence. There is enough before you right here and now. And he reminds us of our priorities to seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We are finite and sinful beings who need to be taught and reminded of what is truly excellent and what is truly good. And this is what God's law is. Now we know the Bible teaches us that the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, 
And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So again, we were reminded, we've seen the necessity of being born again, of being renewed in the heart, so that we would have God's law written, emblazoned upon our hearts. But we know, even as God's people, even as those who've received this work on the heart, we live in a fallen world. We still battle with our flesh. We live in a fallen world that is an enemy with God, that assaults all that is good and holy. We battle with our own flesh that is all too eager to side with our world. We have enemies that are spiritual forces of evil, Satan and his demons, that we don't even see with our physical eyes. We have real battles, real enemies, and we become, as we go through our days and go through our week, distracted. We battle with sin. We often are losing the battle with our sin. We become discouraged. We might, be, we might have worldliness intruding into us. Or perhaps we're just busy with everyday things, trying to earn a living, care for our families, all the good things that we have to do. This is our world. And what can happen is we can get to this place where we're just busy with all these things, maybe even unaware, thinking in worldly ways as well, battling enemies we're not even always consciously aware of. And so when we then come to God's word, we come simply out of a sense of duty. So we can just kind of do this thing and then get on to other matters. But be reminded of what is wisdom according to Christ. To not simply hear the words of Jesus, but to hear them, to believe them, and to respond. And I would suggest that this reminds us of the need for prayer. We do indeed absolutely need the spirits of help, the spirit of God's help. That we might be conformed to the image of God's son. That we might have any success in mortifying and killing our sin. That we might have any progress in sanctification. If you remember back to when we looked at Jesus' teaching on prayer, Jesus reminded us there about how the Father loves to give good gifts to his children. He is pleased to answer prayer. We related that specifically in the context of sanctification being God's will for his people. And so even as we battle and struggle, we come to God and we pray. We pray that God would renew our minds, that we might be those who would approach the word of God understanding what it is. As often as we approach the word of God, whether we are just reading it ourselves at home, whether we're gathering at church, whether we're hearing it preached, that we might come with reverence and desire to hear it, to be taught by the word and to be changed, to be renewed in our thinking and our beliefs, that we might put off any unbiblical thinking and put on whatever is biblical thinking, that we might repent of whatever sin might be uh, condemned in us by the word and we might pursue whatever holiness is laid before us, that we might be renewed and strengthened in our faith as we would apprehend all the more the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done to save sinners. 
that we'd be granted further clarity on all the things that would be pleasing to God. We, we absolutely are in need of God's help for this. And so it requires prayer that we might be those who don't just come day after day, Sunday after Sunday, and here and sit here, but it just in the end has zero effect. I don't think, I would say again, God is, is sovereign in the amount of fruit that he wants to produce in people. There have been very godly people throughout the ages who have never experienced any sort of massive revival in society where people by the hundreds or thousands start coming to the Lord in faith and repenting of their sin and seeking what must I do to be saved and so on. There have been faithful Christians who just labor year after year in a small group with other people, not that many around them. I don't think we can put God in our debt to where we do a certain things and then he must pour out his spirit in some uh, miraculous manner all around us. But it is also an undeniable, I think, reality that where we have experienced those things in history, where, say, we, the church, has experienced those things in history, it has been accompanied by prayerfulness. Where the people understand, the Lord's people understand their neediness. I mean, what, what think about our enemy, the world all around us, Satan and his devices, wolves in sheep's clothing. We have great need for the Lord to sustain us and help us. And I would also suggest that we have great hopefulness as we come to God in prayer. That he is at work and that he will answer us. And so we continue to pray. We persevere in our prayers. This doesn't mean that every time we open the word of God or every time we come to church, we're going to feel renewed. But he will indeed be faithful to produce fruit in his people because it is God's will to sanctify his children. If you are one who has never responded to Jesus' words with a faith that is then accompanied by repentance, that is accompanied by a tremendous gratitude for God and a submission to Christ, a desire to submit to Christ, then you need to hear the warning in these verses. It is the foolish person who simply hears and then moves on. Scripture is very clear. It is not just a book that gives us a few nice things here and there that you can take it or leave it. Christ is the narrow gate and way that leads to life. It is folly, according to Scripture, to simply reject what he has to say or to hear and just leave it at that. Hear this caution, this warning. The foolish and the wise are separated here based on response to Christ's teaching. So again, the wise person not only hears Christ's words but believes and acts upon them. Then we also see that it's the wise person stands on a firm foundation. This is the second point. The wise person stands on a firm foundation. Verse 24 again says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. 
So the one who not only hears Christ's word, but receives them as true, believes in Christ and seeks to obey his words, he is standing on a firm foundation. And I would argue that ultimately this rock, this foundation is Christ himself. Christ is regularly compared to a rock in scripture. He is the stone that the builders rejected who has become the cornerstone, the cornerstone of salvation, of God's redemption plan. So the person who thus builds his life on this foundation, roots himself in Christ Jesus, is the one who will not be shaken. Now there's some question here when Jesus talks about the wind and the waters and and, uh, these, uh, um, where am I? The rain that falls and the floods and the winds that are beating upon the house. uh, What kind of trial is this talking about? There's some question, is this speaking of Final judgment, or is this speaking of the kinds of trials and tribulations that we face presently in this life? And most would agree that we needn't limit it to one or the other. The reality is we do face trials in this lifetime. And the person that is founded on Christ and on his word can withstand whatever comes. Such a one is graciously and powerfully held by Christ's hand. We, we talked about that much more last week. To be, to have our hope of eternity tied entirely to what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished. To receive that as a gift of God's grace by faith apart from our own works provides a security and a confidence and a hopefulness in the midst of any kind of trial or tribulation we might face. Furthermore, if it is your habit in life to come to the Word of God and seek to obey the Word of God and to understand it, when you get hit with some sort of trial, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to do what you always do. Rejoice in your salvation that is not undone by this trial that you are experiencing. You're going to pull on all the things that you have learned, however much you have learned about the truth of who God is in Scripture. And you're going to continue to seek God's word. What does it have to say about this trial? And to believe God's word and to seek to respond in the midst of that trial as faithfully as God will help you to do. There is a foundation there that is solid and can withstand any tempest, any storm. John Gill He's a Baptist pastor and theologian many years ago. Writes this of the various enemies that assault our soul in this life. He says, these several metaphors here of rain, floods, stream, and winds may design the temptations of Satan, the persecutions of the world, the corruptions of man's own heart, and the errors of false doctrines of men, from all of which such a man is safe who was built upon the rock, Christ Jesus. can withstand storms that come in our lifetime. But also with regard to the storm of judgment, the one who is rooted in Christ Jesus has no reason to fear it, but stands secure. Again, as we saw last week, the fruit of obedience does necessarily follow saving faith. 
But that fruit is never to be our hope of eternity. Our obedience to Christ's word is imperfect. It can never be the source and grounds of our hope. That remains solely the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the person who receives Christ's word, believes it, and seeks to live in light of it, indeed stands secure. But by way of contrast, verse 26 says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. The one who merely hears what he has to say, and that's it, who doesn't go on to believe what Jesus says, to believe in him, nor to put his words into practice. They have a foundation not on the rock of Christ, but a foundation that is on sand. And obviously, that is not a strong foundation. Trials and tribulations leave such a person without any solid footing to withstand it. And even if they do sort of withstand the difficulties of this life, they will eventually fall under God's judgment. It is appointed man once to die, and after that, the judgment. They will stand before God, and great will be the fall. The book of Hebrews, in chapter 3, verse 12, I'm going to read a number of verses here. If you want to flip there, you can. Uh, The author of Hebrews has an illustration, I think, of precisely what Jesus is teaching us here. This this idea of of hearing, but then not really benefiting from it. Here's what he has to say. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. The the wilderness generation heard the voice of God. They heard of God's promises to them, to redeem them, to be their God. They even witnessed some of these, this temporal redemption as they themselves came out of Egypt even. They experienced some of this. They heard of God's promises to be good to them, to be their God, to give them the land of Canaan. To bless them. 
And yet for many, it did not benefit them because they did not embrace it by faith. Which led them then into greater disobedience to God, which eventually resulted in their perishing. They heard, but they did not believe. And therefore, they did not act upon those words. They they were rooted in sand. They were building their lives on sand. Do not be one who simply hears the words of God, the words of Scripture, and yet just leaves it at that. These are the very words of God. Again, the response to, our, to the Lord Jesus, whether one believes or disbelieves, determines much. As we, as his people, as we who do believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, have responded in faith, as we anticipate our Savior's return, our Lord has given us, as his people, a mandate to be about his business, to obey his word. And in this Sermon on the Mount, he has clarified many matters relating to the law of God and our practice of it. He has given us many principles to apply to to various areas of life, more than he has spoken of here. So, for example, in chapter 6, at the beginning of it, he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He goes on to talk about how we ought to be those who seek to ultimately live our lives before God and to his glory and pleasure, first and foremost, above all things. We're not doing this just to please other people or to look good in the eyes of others. And then he applies that to three different areas, to our giving to the needy, to our prayer, our praying, and to our fasting. But of course, we can apply this to all kinds of different areas, this admonition to be careful at how we practice our righteousness. Furthermore, we do not divorce the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount from the rest of Scripture. All of it, properly understood, is the Word of Christ. And so this really is vital to who we are as Christians, to what it means to be a Christian, to what it means to be a church. We are called Christians. We are those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and seek to submit ourselves to him. He is our king now. He reigns over all things, it is true, but in a special, unique way with those whom he has saved, He rules over us in his redemptive kingdom. He is our saving king. And so we are those who trust in him and seek to submit ourselves to him, to accomplish his will, 
And again, notice here in these words that Jesus equates the will of my Father in heaven from verse 21 with hearing and doing his words. Again, this is an astonishing reminder of who it is that is speaking here. The, the ones, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The one who believes and goes on to produce fruit, doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. And here he says, the division is over those who hear his words and then do them. His words are the will of God, the will of his Father. He's revealing this to us. Again, Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, truly and eternally God, of the same substance as the Father and the Spirit, who was made flesh in order to be our mediator. He is our great high priest. He came to offer his own perfect self in our place to purchase our forgiveness of sins, to satisfy God's wrath for our sins. He rose again from the dead. He has been glorified. He has ascended to the Father's right hand. Whereas our great high priest, he continues to intercede for his own. He is our great high priest. He is our king, the king of the heavenly kingdom. And he is also the great prophet who is none other than the very word of God. So John begins his gospel, you recall. In the beginning was the word. He's speaking of Jesus, the eternal son who in time became man to save men, to save humankind. So let us be reminded again that when we come to the word of God, that's precisely what it is. It is the word of God. Let's be reminded of its goodness, of its authority. And let us seek out of gratitude to God for his grace to submit ourselves to that which he says. To believe what he tells us to believe. To put off what he tells us to put off. Again, not in some legalistic fashion to earn his pleasure, but because he has given us his grace already. Because we are already his children by faith. So we are reminded once again here that the words of the Lord Jesus are not merely to be heard, but they are to be heeded. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Father, we are in need of your word. We need your special revelation in order to know you more fully, to know you in a saving way. Father, we can look out and look up and we can see the glory of the world that you have created and how it screams of your divine majesty. But how we would be reconciled to you requires your word. And so we praise you that you have given it. Furthermore, Lord, we acknowledge and we are thankful that you have told us and given us everything that we need to be equipped 
to live this life to you. You have supplied this to us in your word. Father, we confess that we fall well short of your glory, well short of your law. And so we praise you again for your grace. We praise you again for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would make us those who long to be conformed to the image of your Son. That we would not distort your grace such that we would become presumptuous and and not really concerned about matters of sin and righteousness. But Father, I pray that you would also free us from legalism where we seek to obey you and think that your love for us is dependent upon our level of obedience. I pray that we would be those who would long to be conformed to Christ's image because you have made us your own. And knowing that you are bringing your people to glory, I pray that we would, in gratitude, and that it would be our joy that we would set our minds on things above, that we would indeed seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Make this our passion, I pray. Father, we thank you for your tremendous mercy that you show us every day. We pray that you would do good work in our hearts, in our midst, in our lives. And that you would do this that you might receive glory. To your name would be all praise. So that we and all those around us would know that every good thing we've ever done or accomplished is purely because of your goodness and kindness to us. We thank you for your promises. We thank you for your mercies. In Jesus' name, amen. This time I invite Harley to come and to lead us.